Here maybe I'm Hebrews, so I don't know if we'll finish. I can't ever promise to finish something this. That's going too far. <laughs> I don't want to get false hope here. Hebrews 3.15. <clears throat> Fantastic passage. It's actually already been quoted, so this is a reiteration, but that tells us it's important. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as what may provoke me. If you weren't here in the earlier Sunday school classes in Hebrews 3, this provocation is a reference to Numbers chapter 14. And that was, the provocation was at Kadesh, and the people were refusing to go into the promised land. And so that was the provocation. And God was very angry with them, because he took them out of Egypt and fed them and brought them to the promised land, and they didn't want to go in. So they provoked him, because they wouldn't listen to God, they wouldn't listen to Moses, and so they had to sit there for 40 years until that whole generation died. And then God would raise up the kids to go in. And that's, that's what this is all about. And this, most of uh, Hebrews 13 is a citation of Psalm 95, which is a remembrance of that event, Psalm 95. Okay? Now, what is it, why is this being given to the Hebrews? Well, the author of Hebrews is suggesting that these early Christians who were Jewish in background, who were tempting, being tempted to go back to Judaism rather than stay with Messiah, were facing the same sort of temptation that their forefathers had faced in the Old Testament during the wilderness. And that if they were to go back, they're failing to enter the promised land, in the promised land here being messianic rest, messianic salvation. So that's what we have going on here. Now, uh, Bill, could you, oh, this, uh, this is for all of us. Let's turn to Psalm 78, and we're going to read 11 through 22, because there's 11 verses here, so we should all turn to it. Psalm 78. I think one of the evidences for the inspiration of Scripture is that the that the Jewish people who wrote the scripture tell all the bad things that they did. You know, it, normally you're going to write something about yourself. You write a real glowing history and take all the bad things out to make yourself look good. But these people were so committed to what the truth was that they'd write it down even when it made themselves look really bad. And, I, and I've used that argument before when people question the inspiration of scripture. Why would somebody write this in their own history? Only, the only explanation of this is true. All right, let, let's read Psalm 78, 11 through 22. And they forgot his deeds and, the, and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. He led them with the cloud by day and all the night with the light of fire. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they continually continued to sin against him and to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test, asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God and they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks, the waters gushed out, and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for this people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. 
and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yes. Psalm 78, 11 through 22. And that is a Jewish summary of the history, how they understood their own history. God did all these miracles. God was so wonderful to our forefathers. And look at what they did. And why, now why did they write this down and remember it? In the Psalms, they sing these. And I think it's interesting that they're singing about how bad they are. Why? Because they don't want to fall into the same example. It was a perpetual reminder not to do the same thing. So Hebrews is taking up the theme and giving the same reminder to Christians that we've not followed this example either. But how good is God? How good is God? I think about that when it, after the debate was over and some of these things that were said. The first 20 minutes when he was saying, you know, the God you believe in, you know, that my God is this evil, cruel tyrant that doesn't love people and all this stuff. And I was thinking about that claim, which is, it's very, I don't like hearing that. It's almost, it's, it's almost impertinent. Um, and I thought, you know, how could you not notice, I don't care how, what doctrine you have about God's sovereignty. How can you, how can you not notice how kind God is to everybody? God does love his enemies. He does show love to every person on the face of the earth, whether they believe in him or not. He allows people to blaspheme his name and curse his holy name, and he has all the power and ability to turn them into smoke. And he doesn't do it. He, he, he feeds people that curse him. He just sends rain to make their crop grow, even though they hate him. And how could you not believe in the universal love of God? And I thought and that's one of the things that thought that I left that debate with, is that, you know, God is so kind. You know, I think one of the reasons why Greg and people that think like that have that issue is, in one sense, how they look at, at humanity is almost like this, these innocents, I didn't do anything, people. Yeah. And that filters through the theology, it really does. Whereas, if you really see humanity for what they are, you know, blasphemous uh, people who are enemies of God, who hate what is good, I mean, and we can really look around. This, we, we see it every day in the 10 o'clock news. I mean, it's not like this is something secret. And um, James, and he, and he comes across in the analogies. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, but James White would change. Yeah. Yeah. And what they do is they say, you know, you know it's, it's just the, the analogies about salvation, you know, it just talks about someone, you know, falling into a hole and, and you know, throwing a, a rope down. And, okay, well, that's a fine analogy. It presumes the person wants to be saved. I tell Todd uh, Frail on the radio uh, gave me an analogy. He said, well, that would be like, uh, i got three kids and they all want to go to the uh, mega ball, and I just decide I'm going to choose this one and leave the other ones behind. And uh, I thought about it after the fact. I thought, you know, it's not, that's not the way it is. You got three rebellious brats that you want to take to the Mega Ball, and all three of them said, I ain't going, I'm not going, I don't go to the Mega Ball, I don't go anywhere with my dad, I want to stay home. And so you take one of them and say, you know, um, I'm going to make an example out of you. And you take the one, put them in the car, take them to the Mega Ball, and when they get there, they have an experience that makes them realize that this is a good thing. And they get all excited about it. And then you take those, that one back, and he tells his brothers, 
Oh, this is great. You should have gone. Are you kidding? <laughs> they still don't want to. And that's more like what salvation is like. Is when you go back to your buddies, they think you're nuts. And James White, when the, the big hand with Dave Montemel, this was great because Dave Montemel used this analogy of someone fell into a hole and they're trying to get out. And God, God, the guy can only jump up eight feet high. And the rope goes down to where it's ten feet. Yeah. And that's a really bad analogy because it makes it look like I'm trying to get saved, I'm trying to get saved, but God isn't letting me. But you can, James White goes, that's a bad analogy. Here's what it's really like. Five convicts have escaped. They have raped, they have plundered, they killed the king's family, and they were justly on their way to uh, their death sentences. They escape. They're in a house, of, and the house catches on fire because they set it on fire. And the king sends his own son in to pull. Even though there were five of them, he pulls three of them up. And um, saves them and parts them, and his, and his son dies. And the other one, and the other ones that say, "No, we're not going to." And the other one says, "We don't, we don't want to. We'll, we'll take this." <laughs> I would rather burn. It's a lot better. Than it's a well. Tomorrow, you see, the, yeah, you see, the, the the analogies are all trying to say everybody wants to be a Christian. And I told, I told uh, on the radio. I said that on the radio. I think I can't remember which time on the radio, but when I was talking, I didn't want. Somebody would have told me. When I was this rebellious college student, blaspheming, just wanting to go to every party I could go to, and I didn't want to, I hadn't been in church for years, okay? And I slept till 11.45 every Sunday morning because the donut shop closed at noon on Sunday. But <laughs> <laughs> I had to get up and get 15 minutes to get donuts before they closed. <laughs> and if somebody would have told me one week later, so okay, this is this rebellious party and college student that blasphemed God day in and day out and was angry because my fiance got saved. If somebody says, one week from now, Bob, I'm going to tell you what you're going to be like. You're going to get up early on Sunday. You're not going to go to parties. You're going to go to church. You're going to sing hymns with a bunch of old ladies. I said that on the radio. That's right. I go, oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That's literally what happened at that church. So I mean, that's why I had not been there. It, it, it wasn't like I went to some church that had a rock band, you know. <laughs> okay, so they had the old organ, and you know, it was exactly my music. And you're going to go to church with these people, and you're going to sing hymns, and you're going to pay your tithes to the church, and you're going to read your Bible every day, and you're going to pray every day. That's what your life will be like one week from today. I would have gone, ah! <laughs> Somebody shoot me! And it's, that's hell. And, and, and it literally happened. So, I mean, what, I said that on the radio because conversion changes our desires. And that, that's what I was trying to get to understand. That it isn't that God foredrags you and forces you to be a Christian against your will. That's why I don't use it. And Greg was asking me during the break, why don't you use irresistible grace? So because, again, it's a bad analogy. It, it makes us think that God's forcing us to do something against our will. He changes us, and we love what we used to hate. And we can't wait to go. I can't wait to go to church. I can't wait to hang out with Christians. I can't wait to sing hymns to the Lord. I can't wait to read my Bible, you know, because I, I'm learning out of it. And that would, you can't just make somebody do that. Do you understand? That's what conversion is like. And so God takes a rebellious sinner and turns him into a worshiper by a sovereign act of glorious grace 
And praise God for that. So, what is, today if you hear his voice, that's sort of what in a sense conversion is like, is that God unplugs our ears and we hear his voice. The, the universal call is saying, repent, believe the gospel, repent, believe the gospel. Finally one day it sinks in. And we do. So, for verse 16, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So this is, there's a series of rhetorical questions. One, two, three, four, five. Five rhetorical questions here. Who provoked him? The people in the wilderness. Now there's a, a, a bunch of stuff here from Numbers 14. Why don't we all turn to Numbers 14 and we can look these up together. Numbers 14 is the background for these rhetorical questions. Uh, first of all, I want to look at Numbers 14, 2 through 4. It says, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, We would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? God gives them manna and water, and then it's, Oh, we'd be better off dead than serving God. What a slap in the face. Why is the Lord bringing us out in the land to fall by the sword, or our wiser little ones will become plunder? It would be better for us to return to Egypt. So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is the provocation that, that Hebrews 3 is referencing. Now, the, this, uh, those who sin, and it says, though indeed, not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. So I'm going to look at verse 13. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for thy strength thou did bring up this people from their midst. That would, that would be uh, after he pleaded for them. And in 19, Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy loving kindness, just as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt till now. So again he asked for forgiveness. In verse 22, Oh, okay. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice. So we have Moses being merciful, saying, God, don't kill these people. I'll give them another chance. But they don't want to listen to God. So, quite a story, isn't it, how Moses is compassionate and pleading to God for these people, even though they're treating him so badly. Um, And then, uh, okay, Bill, could you look up Joshua 14, 7 through 11? This becomes, this whole event becomes indelibly imprinted on the minds and hearts of all future Jewish people. You know, the Passover, it begins the event, which we're going to be talking about here at the Biblical Theater. 7 through 11. No, 14, 7 through 11. 14, 7 through 11. But this, even for secular Jews who rarely have anything to do with with their heritage, they'll usually go to Passover. Okay? And it's sort of like you can't forget what happened. This is what makes us Jewish. This is what this means. Why is this night different from all others? And then it, it just, it comes all the way through the scripture, bringing 
them back. Now remember, God did this because he had this promise for you. And the promise is fulfilled. If you don't receive Messiah, this is what the author of Hebrews say, if you don't receive Messiah, you're like those ones in the wilderness that don't go into the promised land. You can't get into the promised land if you don't receive Messiah. Okay, 7 through 11, Joshua 14. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to a spy out the land. And I was brought in word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren, that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children shall be shall forever uh, thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake his word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am strong this day, as yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, and my strength was then, even so my strength now, for war, both to go out and to come in. Okay, so this is Joshua now, after this event at Kadesh, 45 years later he's going in. And he's 85 years old. Wouldn't it be nice to have all your strength when you're 85? <laughs> I was going to ask you if it works that way now. <laughs> you ain't that old, so you don't know, kid. Maybe when you're 85, you'll be just like Joshua. That wasn't Joshua, that was Caleb. Oh, was that Caleb that made that statement? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get the context right. All right, that was Caleb. All right, sorry. Thanks for correcting me. All right, Caleb was the one who was still strong at 85. <laughs> Maybe they had a better diet back then. <laughs> And they probably did, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, they didn't have Wonder Bread. <laughs> How to kill strong bodies twelve ways, remember? Remember that? Wonder Bread. They used to have that stuff. When I was a kid, they had the tenderness test. They'd take the Wonder Bread and they'd rip it and go right down the middle. Anybody old enough remember that? They'd rip it down the middle and say, oh, this is good bread. Well, what they meant was we took everything nutritious out of it. <laughs> and all you got left is what's really just starch and worthless. <laughs> and, and everybody thought it was great because I was in the 50s. And, and, and the more refined something was, it was a sign of modern innovation. Now everybody with the more grain and holes in there, the better the bread is. It's weird. They, that 50s, they painted over all the wood because you don't want to see anything natural. You know, people literally, they have old trim in their house and they paint it all white because wood was a sign of poverty. And now if you're rich, you buy wood. <laughs> all right, Hebrews 3, 17. And, and whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? Yep. And then, um, they... Um, here's something that I was reading that William Lane was bringing up as an issue. He was pointing out that in some passages, the 40 years are called 40 years of wrath. In other passages, they're called 40 years of blessing. And so some scholars 
Yeah, well, some scholars said, well, there must have been two 40-year periods, but I don't believe that. They said, in other words, there was 40 of blessing and then another 40 of wrath. But that doesn't square with, like, Caleb, what he said, Caleb said there in Joshua. Now, let's look up some of these. Uh, Dean, if you could look up. There it is. Numbers 14, 33, and 34. Uh, these progressive lenses are... Somewhere there's a spot where you can see this. You just got to go. There it is. I think Bert has a better idea. Just get the trifocals and you can see, right? I don't. Yeah, look at Numbers 14, 33, and 34. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years. And very... Bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities. Even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. Okay, so they're going to spend forty years burying the dead carcasses to remember how sinful they are. So in that sense, it's forty years of wrath. Now, Leif, could you look up Deuteronomy 8.34? And Stephan, Deuteronomy 2... Oh, okay, let's skip over to Car in there. Deuteronomy 2.7, Car, And then, uh, Bert, if you could do Nehemiah 9.27. No, no, 9.21, I think it says. I can't tell. If 9.21 is good, we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, 3 and 4. When you got to go ahead. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with man, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. So in a sense, there was a blessing there, the banner, the clothing didn't wear out. God was showing himself to be a, a provider. You don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So God was showing kindness for 40 years and wrath. Okay, Deuteronomy 2.7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all that, he has, that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked. So there's 40 years of blessing. Right? Dean read one, there's 40 years of wrath. Current, 40 years of blessing. Now, how are you doing on Nehemiah over there? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Did somebody steal it out of your Bible? I don't think I It's right before Joel. It's back there, always. Nehemiah 9.21, I think. Their 
Yeah, so they're remembering that as 40 years of blessing there. So how, here's our question. How can you have 40 years of wrath and 40 years of blessing to be talking about the same event? Keith. The wrath rests on the unbeliever. And unbelievers, which were the generation that came out, wouldn't go in because they wouldn't believe God and refused to. But in, in not wiping them out immediately, but in holding off this wrath and making it progressive, their seed, and the seed that was promised, the promise of the seed of Abraham and his seed, continued. And out of that unbelieving generation, God raised up a new generation, uh, concurrent with it, and they received the blessing. They both were fed, one unto life, coming into the promised land, and one unto death to die there. That, that's a very good explanation. See, this is, this is pertinent to some of the things we're discussing in the debate. God's attributes are always completely His, and they're all true, even though they seem to be opposite. So God is always loving as well as just. And He's willing to show both His love and His justice, and His mercy and His wrath. And so here is one event that's showing both. Here is, for one thing, like He said, he could have just wiped them all right there. You know? And that, but this whole 40 years of wrath, he kept sending manna. He kept giving water out of the rock. Their clothes don't, don't wear out, which is a miracle. Yeah, and he keeps, he keeps giving them lessons all day long. I've held my arms up to a little bit. Yeah. Disobedient Yeah. There, I mean, there was so much common grace. I mean, there was supernatural grace. Yeah. But they were allowed to live out their lives under in God's blessing and provision. And, you know, if any of them truly had faith in God at that point, in spite of their not going to the promised land, I believe they would be saved in eternity. And yeah. the blessing turns into further accountability for them. And, and again, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. Just as they were further accountable because they saw all of this provision and all of this that's the point exactly and the blessings that are offered in the messianic age are greater what God is doing is far greater than what they, anything they ever saw and, uh, what we find in a lot of churches today not only uh, probably Greg Boyd's church a lot of churches today is that they focus on God is love, God is love, God is love, and everything is warm and fuzzy, and it fits the secret sense of the church. But God is not love one moment and then just another moment. God is love and just all at the same right. time. Yeah. And it's a lot of the church doesn't want to recognize that God is just and true and faithful. That's a good point, Dean. And you know... I think that if you don't understand that God's just, then you can't make sense of the cross. Because the cross is brings both things together. Because the cross shows both justice and love. It shows justice in that God demands a payment for sins. And Jesus dies on the cross, and it's a hor- horrible death. It shows love in that he died for us. But if you take the justice side out of it, the love side loses its meaning. You see, when I grew up in this liberal church that believed in love, 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 good Lord, good Lord, good Lord, there's no hell, 
What they did was they moved the justice part out altogether. All right? And so I could never understand. But they talked about Jesus and the cross, and you knew about it. And we had Easter, and we had Good Friday. But I, I, as a 16-year-old, when I started asking questions, I couldn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to me. Well, if God's loving and everybody's going to heaven, then why do I have to go to this church? And what is, if there's no miracles, why should I believe the Bible? Because it tells me that there are. And if nobody, it, it, you know, it's just, they may have kind intentions to want to make God look beloved, but they got the gospel of any saving power by removing the justice. Yeah, and, and, and I went to visit a, a, it was a Methodist church I grew up in, but I'm not saying every Methodist church believes that, because I know some do preach the gospel. But I visited one in Arizona, and the pastor, she says, God does not punish sins. That's what she said. Her whole sermon was, God doesn't punish sins. And I was sitting there. You know, that's what I do when something bugs me. I probably did that last Friday night when he was giving me 20 minutes. Do I have to listen to this? God doesn't punish sins. Well, then, what do you need? What's the cross about? Well, it shows God's love. But if there's no justice, the love becomes vacuous. Yes? I think, that, I think uh, in keeping with that, the mercy, like Pastor Gordon was talking about, mercy. And, and people love the word mercy because it's such a pretty sounding word. It's Mercy being there, so merciful. You sin, I love you. You sin, I forgive you. But forget that, and then, and then you mentioned that perfect justice. Mercy can't occur without perfect justice. Right. And sometimes, you know, like like mercy, the mercy could mean that you really go to hell because heaven will be your hell if you don't want to, if you don't, if you don't accept, you know, the, the truth. Heaven will be your hell. Yeah. Perfect justice, perfect justice for that. Right. Mercy would be, you know, you're going to. God is fully just and loving and merciful. And if you try to fine-tune God's attributes as revealed in the Bible to make God look better to the unregenerate mind, you really are gutting the gospel of its, of its power. Yes, Dave? There's no human prayer that says, may your mercy be satisfied in justice. Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, Kathy. The one thing that comes to mind is that when you punish a little child, in a way you're showing love, and yet on the other hand, when he when he doesn't have that, there is no justice in his uh, mm-hmm. in his being. Yeah, Hebrews 12 talks about that, doesn't it? God disciplines every son he receives. It's a sign of his love. And the mercy comes after the punishment. What happens to a son that gets no discipline? Yeah. They're not very unhappy. Well, not only that, if you're not getting disciplined from the Lord, you responsible you're not. You're not a son, right? Oh, that's a good point. We'll get to Hebrews 12, you know, maybe in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's the whole concept of, of a supper, God's supper, where there's both judgment and blessing. Yeah. Where you see prefigured in a 40-year supper where God supplied the bread to the entire population of Israel. He supplied the bread that was one big feast of God for 40 years. And, ha- and all of them, you know, half died and the other seed came up and they were blessed. It's the same concept as the Lord's Supper where we see it 
being a watershed, Judas was present at the first Eucharist when Christ gave him the bread. He left there to death perdition. Another, he received that bread. He went to perdition. And you had the disciples that received it to life. And further on, when you had the great wedding feast of the Lamb, you have uh, God says, an angel, this is Revelation 19, uh, standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, Come assemble for the great supper of the Lord. Well, this great supper of the Lord, on the right side of that supper, receiving and covered by the linen of Christ's righteousness. It's a bad thing. Uh, by the way, Keith has a really interesting study that he did on that. And he gave it to me. He traces Mishta, that's in Hebrew, right? He traced this idea of a supper, or a meal, a fellowship meal, Mishta, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And in every single incident, there was both judgment and blessing occurring simultaneously. Alright? Is that right? And that was a very, it's a very, I think it's a profound study. We should get it written up and published sometime. But it's a, it's a, it's, it can't be coincidental. It, another one, John 6. Think I used John 6 in the debate as my closing two minutes. John 6 is a Mishnah because they have this supper. Jesus provides bread for everybody. It's a big blessing. But it ends up being judgment because they've all come to faith. And so he says, well, you have, we have another supper coming by flesh and by blood. And they're offended. And so you have a parting of the ways. You have a supper, and you have a parting of the ways. The ones that partook and went into unbelief, and the ones that partook in faith and went into blessing. You have it at the Last Supper with Judas. And, and, and uh, it's very interesting, and I think it's universally true. Is that correct? Every time this happens. You see the word you have. God comes down and mishdas with Abraham, and Sodom and Gomorrah go up and smoke, and Abraham ends up with blessing. Yeah. In Esther, when you have a Mishnah with Haman, and the king, Haman's bad and Esther's fine. It, it's a consistency. Yeah, absolutely consistent through the Bible. So, uh, First Corinthians, may you sleep. Yeah, there's judgment in First Corinthians. And, you know, that's, if I ever preach that, I'll give you credit. All right. <laughs> For fighting it. He doesn't care. Yeah, you do the PowerPoint, I'll preach it. That would be a, that would be a fun study, wouldn't it? To trace this whole idea. Every time God comes and has a meal with somebody, somebody dies and somebody gets blessed. Every time. Or several die, or a whole bunch die, a whole bunch gets blessed. It always is a parting of the ways. And the very last judgment is another Mishnah. The birds feast on the dead bodies, and the elect feast at the very supper of the Lamb. <laughs> Can you imagine that? At the, at the very end, we have yet one more mishnah. Yes. Um, I just like to give your comments on the but when a person dies and someone assumes that the person is going to be going to heaven, and the person that, that dies looking down on those that. Or do you want to know whether they can watch from heaven? Yeah. I don't believe that myself. For one thing, I don't think God would torment people like that. You know, because if you had to watch everybody sitting on earth while you're in heaven, <laughs> yeah, right. You're in heaven, you have to watch everybody failing, because that's what we do so much when we're here. So, could, they, could they be viewed as the great caught witnesses that are cheering us on? That's the only, okay, 
the only passage that anybody would use is that one, uh, Bill, the, the call to witnesses, assuming that they're literally witnessing this. Yeah, but actually, I think that, that, that's not, the, the text doesn't support that. The text is, he's just gone through the Hall of Faith. Abraham through um, yeah. people, and then he gets to some unnamed ones, so he does it, cut lines and stuff like that. Every, all these people have endured, even though they didn't see what was promised in their lifetime, they endured, they endured, they endured, they endured. This is the thought of witnesses, the ones that he just named. Not necessarily everybody. These people that are up, up that are watching us right now and cheering us on us. It's their lives. And that's what the Hebrew, yeah. the Hebrew mind would have seen. Yeah, right. like, you wouldn't take that literally. It's like a baseball hall of fame that's historical. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yep. The hall of fame are witnesses and so they call, that, they call Hebrews like the hall of fame. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I agree. I don't think God's going to force us to watch this when we're in heaven. We're, we're going to be up there with the angels, and there's a lot going to be more interesting than watching people sin on earth. There's, there's no tears, no sorrow in heaven. If you were in heaven watching the loved ones sin, that, I mean, that would be yeah. a yeah, You'd watch people that you love not come to faith. No, I don't, I don't think God's going to do that to us. But some, some of these funeral sermons are just sappy. Yeah. No, no, I'm not kidding. I've been at some funerals where you can tell the pastor's not really a Christian. And I went to a funeral of somebody that had never gone to church and wouldn't have anything to do with Christianity. It was a scoundrel. And then, and the, the pastor said, oh, I think uh, so-and-so would love this poem as he's in heaven watching us. And they read his poem and we were all snickering, so that guy would far from me hear that call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, he does. Yeah. All right, Hebrews thirteen eighteen. And to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest? Bill, this is a foreshadowing of a theme now that is going to just explode in Hebrews. The promised rest becomes so important. So what is a true Sabbath rest? Here he, he says they, they, they should not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient. And so here we have defiance and unbelief as the reason for not entering rest. And look at verse 19. This, I think, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. When you think about it, it's, it's, it's so ironic. It's unbelievable. And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And here we have a generation who saw more miracles than any generation in history. They saw the plagues come upon the Egyptians. They saw God split the Red Sea. They saw the Egyptian army drown in the Red Sea. They saw water come out of a rock miraculously. They saw manna come from heaven to feed them. They saw clothes not wear out for 40 years. They saw the pillar a fire and a pillar of cloud. Do you think that they knew there was a God? I mean, they had they could visibly see there was a God. They received the Ten Commandments by etched and stone by the finger of God. And what does it say? They died in unbelief. Peter did he? I think it all depends upon what they get in the temple. Speaking of eternal 
Yeah, it was based on temporal things. And John 6 picks up that theme. Because remember after John, after Jesus multiplies the bread and the people come after him, and he said, you're not coming because you saw signs, but because you want bread. See, the sign was supposed to point them to Jesus in faith. But they just wanted him to be king and make bread for them. All right? They hey, free bread. I'm like, who doesn't want free bread? But so you can get your... And then, and then what did they say? Well, Moses gave us manna. Yeah, he did. And they died in unbelief too. And so will you if you don't come to Jesus. Yes. Wasn't that a good cross-reference for the... The unforgivable sin of grieving the Holy Spirit because it tells exactly why they didn't enter. Because they had no belief. And God came to them and had objective proofs that He was leading them, and they still, in the face of objective proofs, wouldn't believe. And Christ came and gave objective proofs that they would, Christ and they, they still wouldn't believe. They still wouldn't believe. So that's your blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yes. I think a good point today with this, what we're talking about in today's church. Many churches are seeking signs and wonders, like the Toronto blessing. Yeah. Um, signs and wonders don't do it. I mean, it's full of signs and wonders. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, well, just think that that's what Jesus said. So you, he says, yeah, Jesus multiplies the bread, does miracles, and they all see it. And they want to make him king. They, and they even believe that he's the prophet that Moses promised. Oh, of truth, this is the prophet that would come into the world. Therefore, we want you to be king. And they said, and as soon as he wouldn't give them any more breath, they don't want him. And then they said, well, what sign are you going to give? Well, they just saw a sign. Well, give us another sign. All right, here's the sign. By flesh and by blood. The only sign I'm going to give you is I'm going to die for your sins. Well, then they all left except for the handful of disciples. And it said they weren't walking with Jesus anymore. So, yeah, I agree, Dean. I think that, that's a, when, when Wimber was promoting that, you remember that power evangelism? Well, people won't come to faith unless they see signs of wonders, so we've got to do signs of wonders or they won't believe. As soon as I heard that, I'm, read the Bible. <laughs> the, the more signs they get, the more unbelief they get. Unless we make all this stuff over with, the biggest one's coming. Because all these signs and wonders are going to be on cosmic scale. Antichrist. Yeah. Well, not only Antichrist, but then when the judgment of God comes, oh yeah, they all realize all the you know when all the grass burns up, when the hundred pound hailstones come, when all these things are happening, they blaspheme God because of these things. And they know God's doing it, so they curse Him. These are the biggest signs that you're they're going to be the whole universe is going to. Yeah, I wrote a whole article on that called "And They Did Not Repent." Right out of Revelation, and they did not repent. Every one of those people knew God existed for a fact. They saw the signs. Pete, then we've got to be done here. I think, too, uh, when you don't want to believe, you can easily rationalize against it. I rationalized those times in my life. I went through the near death experiences, and I thought I was going But, two, that's something tangible like a golden cap. But you know what? Uh, we got through chapter 3. Can you believe that? And uh, we haven't died in unbelief, I hope. <laughs> so we'll go on into chapter 4 and learn more about the promised rest of God. <laughs>